everyone, and welcome to the Champions Cast here on ZeldaDungeon.net. My name is Andy Spateri, joined as always by Allison Aletha, and this week we've got a very special guest for you. Uh, we reviewed the game Tunic a couple weeks ago, and we told you that we weren't done with it. And we have a nice surprise for you because we have got the lead developer, the sole developer of the game, Andrew Scholdeis, on the show. Andrew, how are you, my friend? I am doing well. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. So when I was uh, when I was thinking of this intro, um, I was like, I, I actually, what what was your official title? Because I think you kind of did everything for this game. Did you not? Uh, no, not quite. Um, I guess you could call me, yeah, the the lead developer. Um, but I, I had some help along the way, and we can get into that if you like. We could just jump oh, right yeah. in. I could start crediting collaborators. So uh, yeah, I worked on a game called Tunic, which is an isometric action adventure about a tiny fox in big world. Sounds like maybe podcast listeners have heard of it before. Uh, I worked with uh, Kevin Regami and the rest of Power Up Audio, who did the sound design for the game, as well as Terrence Lee, aka Lifeformed, and Janice Kwan doing uh, the music. Also, Eric Billingsley helped out with things like uh, level design, and I'm uh, being published under the uh, banner of Finji, who handle all kinds of things as well. So, um, as uh, fun as it is to say, you know, like, oh boy, solo developer, you know, it's right. uh, there. There are a very there are some some actual one hundred percent solo developers, but there there are few and far between. So I just want to shout out everybody else who's worked on the project. Yeah, definitely. And I've got some questions about some of the people that um, that you just mentioned there. But I guess just to just for uh, I'm sure you've probably got access in a ton of different interviews, Andrew, but just for our audience, uh, I guess maybe just walk us through like how the the general development of Tunic and, and how that kind of the game came to be and, and just what the inspiration was behind it. Sure. So I my very favorite thing in video games is mystery that's that special kind of um somewhat hard to describe mystery that is the excitement of the unknown you know like a locked door or uh you know the realization that something was there the whole time oh goodness what else could be here right that special kind of um feeling like a, a, a world is is ready for you to explore and I, I wanted to make a game like that for a long time. And I was working in the games industry, making casual games, uh, making uh, sort of point and click uh, hidden object games. And I did some game jams and that was a lot of fun. And I realized, hey, all these little side projects that I've been working on don't get anywhere unless there's some sort of constraint around them, like that of a game jam. So I, uh, I thought, well, what if I put some constraints on myself, which is quit my job and and do this for a living, try to make, you know, this dream game. And, uh, and I did that. And it's many years later now, but as of uh, mid-March, the game is out and people seem to enjoy it a great deal. Uh, they sure do. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, um, in a second here. So I guess I've got kind of a long-winded question for you here and, and I'll kind of, I'll start it off by saying that, um, I think I told you that that I am a fellow Canadian. I'm, I'm over in Calgary, and I know that you're over in um, in Halifax. And as silly as this might seem, Andrew, I, I kind of felt like really proud, like when I saw all of the like <laughs> positive reviews and stuff like that, because I was like, that's that's so like great that it's like a Canadian game developer that that's kind of you know like like make it this big splash with this really well received game. Um, so I guess my question to you is just like. 
you know, how, how does that, that make you feel just knowing that you are, uh, like really, really making waves in terms of, you know, the Canadian game development scene. I was reading articles on CBC about you and, um, like how does, how does a guy from Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, which is even in Canada, kind of an overlooked part of Canada, how does a guy like that make it to where he's working with Finji and where, you know, eventually you land with Microsoft and just kind of to take us through that journey? Uh, yeah, it, it, a journey it has been for sure. Um, I think the things that I would attribute mostly would be um, up time and patience. Uh, because a lot of these relationships developed over a long period of time and, um, you know, a, a fair amount of, of luck and just sort of general good fortune, I think. So I had done a, like I said, a few game jams. And so, um, you know, had, had a, my fingers in some indie game development communities, um, enough so that when I started work on the game, you know, people that had seen my work before, uh, you know, like retweeted stuff or whatever. Right. Uh, and uh, that was sort of enough to, to get the ball rolling, I guess. And uh, soon after I started showing the game on on Vine, which dates the development of the, the early part <laughs> wow, of the game yeah. a little bit, um, I was, um, I think I was approached by Felix Kramer, who um, helped me realize, I mean, I, I sort of figured this from the beginning, but working with Felix made me realize that there were lots of things about game development that I did not know how to do. There were things like, you know, um, audio and music that I knew I needed help with. And I thought, well, the rest of the development, that's, you know, I, I can do the, the, the programming and the art and the level design and the animation, the effects, the UI, all of this. And that's all you need, right? Well, no, it's, there's a whole other side of game development that is sort of the business side of things. And uh, talking with um, Felix and later Rebecca and Adam Saltzman at Finji, I um, you know, l learned a lot and learned what I was and was not capable of. And those relationships developed really organically. So people sometimes ask, how did you start to work with Finji? What was it like signing on with a publisher, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's sort of hard to pinpoint when we first started speaking with one another because both Adam and Becca are mentors in the industry. And so I had spoken with them, you know, I had um, sent builds over just saying like, oh, hey, I'm working on this thing. What do you think? What should I do? How do I get funding? Blah, blah, blah. And so they had been helping out for years by the time I really thought, ah, you know, this game needs a publisher. And so that that decision was uh, really easy to make at that point. You know, they, they were the right choice. Um, so has Andrew Schuldeis replaced Sidney Crosby as the, the pride of Nova Scotia? Uh, I, I think <laughs> um, hockey probably outranks isometric action adventure games, um, I think. But, um, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, right? So Yeah, I'm that's right. Al, I have a question. Do you even know who Sidney Crosby is, Al? Oh, I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> oh my God, are, are you a, are you a hockey guy? I, I didn't even ask you that, Andrew. Uh, I, I have been to some Mooseheads games, but uh, that's about the extent of my understanding of hockey. Right, right. Sorry. Uh, hey, that's that's <laughs> a okay. Canadian. Um. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I think that uh, Al and I have both sunk 
a lot of hours into into tunic and and i think that uh maybe maybe i'll speak for for both of us here al but i think that one of the things that we came away with that was kind of like the the really big talking point for us was the manual system and and i'm sure that you you've kind of talked about this uh, as well but I, it was it was just such a, like a a clever a clever gameplay mechanic to kind of unleash abilities that you that you didn't know that you had while while also kind of making it feel like like a a reward and like b kind of um kind of like a, a nice bonus almost so it, it was it was all of these things kind of wrapped into one and i and i thought that it was a really clever um like mechanic to use in the game where where did you come up with the idea for this uh this manual system and uh you know i guess the the whole idea that this is going to teach players about abilities and stuff like that that they didn't know that they had uh right absolutely uh so i love instruction booklets or manuals or, or booklets as they're sometimes labeled in in the era um deeply because they are some of my first exposure to video games, you know, I spent a lot of time um, not playing video games, but just having someone playing the game in the room and me leaping through the manual and looking mm -hmm. at secrets and trying to understand things. And I, I just, I love the promise that those sorts of things do, you know, like, what what is this item? What is this this weird illustration of someone's interpretation of a little eight bit sprite? Uh, what what is this mark on the map? Why is this map so inaccurate? What does this thing mean? Um, you know, and flipping to the back of the manual and seeing all the cool stuff that you'd get later in the game, but you know, you feel like you're not ready for. So I so I have a lot of you know fond memories uh, of those, and it just made a lot of sense. It was on my mind while I was working on a game about mystery. And I, my, the, the absolute perfect sort of secret in my mind is one where, first of all, its presence is tantalizing somehow. You, you know, there is a, a metaphorical closed door somewhere. And when you open that door, what's on the other side is not you know, a trinket, a MacGuffin, you know, that, that would be fine. More game, you know, like discovering, oh, there's a whole new area here. Oh boy, that's even better. But the very best thing is something that not only gives you something new to explore, but something that changes your perception of every area you've explored before, for instance, you know, discovering that, oh, walls are bombable in Zelda. Wow. That means that every wall is now a question mark. Everything I've seen. Oh boy, what does this even mean? You know, it adds a new dimension to everything you've experienced so far. And I think the manual, at least if the intention behind it is that it can help do that. It can help reveal things that you, you know, uh, could have done all along, but did you just didn't know about? And then you think, wait, what else can I do? Um, or maybe later in the game, you discover that there are secrets hidden there that add yet another dimension to uh, some of the things that you found. And I'm I'm being sort of cagey on purpose, but uh, you know, for for people who haven't played the game, but th that's that was the idea behind the the manual, which is uh, 
I apologize, a very long-winded answer, but... Um, oh, no, that's great. Short version is, I thought, boy, oh, boy, I love instruction manuals. Hey, what if you found pages of the instruction manual? And I, I remember listing in my head, um, well, you'd have, you know, like the, the bestiary, like it lists all the monsters and all oh, that grid of all the items that you can find. And, oh, you kind of hide mechanics in there and, and maps and secrets. And, oh, yeah, memo pages. It just made a lot of sense. And, and I got really excited about all the neat stuff that could be hidden in there. I remember I had I had three aha moments when I was playing this game. First, when I I noticed that my little fox was moving on the map, and I was like, "Wait a sec, that was I, I thought that was like a statue or something." I was like, "That's me," uh, which I thought was really cool. And uh, when when you find out how to pray, and the, but I think the biggest one, and I think you'd agree with this, Al, is the Holy Cross. And we won't spoil yeah. what that is, but when you find out what kind of this item that was teased throughout the game, it's like. Oh my! It's one of those ones where it's like, God, I should have known. Uh, so I, it was, it was such a, it was such a great like. Oh my God! Like, of course, right? Like, so I, I just, I really tip my hat to that system. I, I don't know if I've seen a system like that in in a game before, where it was, you know, kind of like I said, kind of it kind of felt like a bonus, kind of felt like a little bit of a nostalgic reward, but at the same time, it's very crucial to how you progress and play that game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I realized uh, fairly early on when we started talking to people about the game that it was going to come across as a collectible. And we sort of went out of our way when, you know, like sort of writing our, you know, press bullet points or whatever, mm -hmm. saying, oh, it's, it's not just a collectible, just like in those old games. It's important to pay attention to the manual. There might be important secrets there. Um, no doubt about that. In, in retrospect, I guess it, it sort of worked out that people interpreted it as a collectible, like, oh, this is sort of neat. Um, because, yeah, then the uh, the sort of, not, not quite a bait and switch, but you know what I mean? That sort of realizing that this thing that you thought was one thing is yeah, just this. Yeah. It has more than one meaning and more than one use. And I, yeah. I think when you when the player realizes that playing Tunic, it's just like, it's one of those moments. It's like, whoa, this, yeah, this is awesome. I what uh, something that's... something that I loved about that was obviously like you know the bigger takeaway would be the the holy cross but something for me that and it seems so silly now but in the middle of gaming I get to that you know to a piece that says you can sprint and <laughs> I was like <laughs> I could have been sprinting this whole time <laughs> but yeah, totally. yeah I I agree I totally loved it because it definitely introduced a whole new you know a whole new way to play a game um you mentioned zelda earlier and obviously in our community with zelda dungeon we're all very big zelda fans and we initially saw this game and we were like oh this is clearly like inspired by zelda but we were we were curious about any other uh games that might have influenced uh tunic for you uh, yeah, for sure. So that's um, yeah, that's a that's a big one uh, for a number of reasons. Most uh, in particular, Zelda One, I feel like, is the sort of like I'm I'm setting out in a big world, and it's this giant grid of screens, and there's a secret in every one. Oh boy, I don't even know where the dungeons are. Let me get the graph paper. Like that sort of feeling of um, of discovery, and like oh wow, there's a network of secret passages. Oh, that's so exciting. You know, I. That that was the the um, the Zelda that inspired me most. I think um, actually, I had never beaten the game, but just before starting work on it, I played through Zelda One for the first time, uh, 
like actually completing it and you know right. i did i got the graph paper and i still have my map of uh of uh level nine or, or whatever the last dungeon is wow you went anyway. old school with it awesome oh yeah totally um yeah there's um there's an article called saving zelda that was written by someone named tevis thompson uh who went on to work on a novel um called uh, second life along with david hellman and uh that original article um sort of outlines how some of the latter zelda games it's it's interesting because breath of the wild has has turned all of that on its head but sort of that mid to late era uh, zelda games being feeling a little bit um like uh pale imitations of their their former selves which is a whole other topic but that's why I lean towards that first game of, um, we're not going to tell you nothing. I hope you've got the manual handy because uh, good luck. Um, yeah, because I, I love that sort of thing. But other inspirations are um, uh, Fez is a big one, I think, as the that in my mind really is the that that represented the the goal structure you know like the uh hey you're playing a game isn't that neat oh my goodness wow it does this cool thing and then again revelations of uh oh wait i didn't even realize you know i there, there's this extra layer to peel back you know and you know secret languages that sort of thing um other reference points that people often bring up when they play the game are the souls games obviously um, right. because it's a video game and everything gets compared there but it, it's it's an apt comparison i definitely drew some inspiration there um and i i don't know if i've talked about this before but the i remember playing ocarina and uh like doing a lot of dodging like a lot of backflips and side hops and rolls and stuff and always feeling like it didn't quite it wasn't quite as effective as I wanted it to be. It didn't have the like, oh, I dodged just in time and now you're open and I get to hit you. And that sort of feeling in the Souls games and in particular Bloodborne um, activated the part of my brain that wasn't being activated when I was playing that right. game as a kid. And so that sort of more technical combat that relies on um, precise timing and spatial awareness was, was sort of the, the core um, inspiration behind the combat at least. Right. Um, I'm going to throw a game out at you, Andrew, and that that I kind of noticed some similarities to in a really positive way. And I'm not sure if you played it or not, but when I would, particularly when, when the game's story kind of gets going here, I really kind of drew some comparisons to Ori in the Blind Forest or Ori and Will of the Wisps in the way that a lot of those characters, like, they really sell the story and the emotion, even though nobody's really speaking. Uh, like, I'll never forget playing Ori in the Blind Forest. I was I was, like, sobbing in the first 10 minutes. I was so... I was so moved in that game. And, and you know, I, I think that there are some moments in this game with, with the fox and, and the air that, for for me, were, were very reminiscent of Ori and, and the Blind Forest. I don't know if you've ever played that game or not, but uh, that was one that I... I mean, obviously, Zelda and Dark Souls are kind of... You know, you, you can see that and, and it wears its inspiration on its sleeve. But I really like that, uh, at least to me, that kind of similarity between, you know, two of my favorite games. Oh, awesome. That's uh that's high praise then. Um, yeah. yeah, Ori is, uh, so I, I've, I've looked at it a bunch and I, uh, find it staggeringly beautiful, both installments of it. Um, but, uh, having worked on a game for the past seven years, I've got a, uh, an impressive and um, embarrassing backlog of things that I want to get to. And that's definitely yeah. near the top. Uh, yeah, it's like, uh, um, Hollow Knight, um, is another one that is sort of like, boy, I, 
I need to get on this, don't I? Because that's a long game is, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to um, start clawing through that backlog, and and Ori's definitely on there. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Al and I haven't been developing games for the last seven years, and our backlog is pretty ridiculous yes. too. So don't feel bad. <laughs> Um, I actually, I want to touch a bit on the story because, you know, I love exploration and games and all that kind of stuff, but a story is usually the biggest important thing to me. And I just have to tell you that this story, it was in a good way. I say this like beautifully disturbing (laughs) (laughs) and I, I wanted to get, um, I guess some of your thoughts on where you got inspiration for the story and for people who are listening to this episode with they might have heard our review episode and we did go a little bit into spoilers so please feel free to talk freely <laughs> yeah well, oh, we'll, okay. we'll just throw so, a spoiler warning out right here if you don't <laughs> want to hear anything about the story uh okay so full yes spoilers ahoy okay sounds good um so again yeah wow high praise um it's interesting because the the story in tunic is very um i don't know uh, obliquely told you know it's um it's uh left there's a lot left up to people to to figure out you know there's no dialogue really Mm -hmm. um and so it was sort of tricky to have uh you know emotional payloads at certain moments it it meant that you know a lot of it needed to be concentrated into uh visuals and um animation to characterize um characters uh but yeah part of the the sort of slow descent, uh, both metaphorical and literal in the game speaks again to one of the things that I mentioned earlier about this, you know, slowly peeling back new discoveries and realizing that there was more here than you thought there was, because that represents a, um, a, a breaking of expectations. There's a, a, a talk by, Jim Stormdancer of um, Frog Fractions fame, uh, who outlined sort of a number of different techniques to have this sort of surprising mystery in games. And one of them is establishing a sort of um, like a, 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 an emotional um, upper level. You calibrate the person's expectations. Mm. And in this game, Sort sort of explicitly trying to do this, but you know it sort of just came out in the wash a little bit as well. You you've got this, you know, I'm playing a Zelda game. It's sunshiny, and there are big scary monsters sometimes. Uh, and then slowly, um, doing weirder and weirder things, so that you start to wonder what is this game going to do next. It's that feeling when you're playing something that uh, I mean, other games have done it. Uh, more intensely than Tunic does. But the, uh, wait, I, I have no idea what's coming next. If the game's going to do that, then what else can it do? Uh, and just a, just a little taste of that, I think, is what we managed to, to put into Tunic with some sort of um, reveals of grim truths and the like. Because uh, for as much as I love a sunshiny world where you're exploring through the countryside, everything is green and bright, I also do like me some, you know, uh, uh, terrible horrors from deep beneath the earth. Uh, that's a good way to put it, because I, I think that 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 flip kind of switches the first time that you go and fight the air when you, uh, you know, you're intended to lose, and, and you kind of see all those, like, these ghosts of, of, of fallen heroes around you. You're like, this isn't what I thought it was. And, you know, it's it's 
it's not as as sunny and happy and straightforward as I thought it was. I, I thought that the last moment when, you know, you go through all the trials of, of getting the manual and that's that last scene with the air and the hero, like that was that was good stuff. I, I, I thought that that was a great moment in the game. Um, and it was just Yay. like, you know, it, it was a and, and we're not trying to suck up to you. I mean, I'm being I'm being serious. I was I was just like, wow, this is uh, this is like a really special scene. Like it, I, I was I was just like. I was really impressed with that. I mean, Thank you. I, I would say that I was too. And I, um, I also want to say that I don't think it was small or tiny or just a little bit of impact to me. It was like insane impact. I, I kind of attributed my like gameplay as like a cube and like the front side of the cube. I was like, oh, yay, this is a happy, cute little fox game and there's little puzzles. And <laughs> I'm all telling my sister about it. And then I come out at night and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, the game is not like that at all. <laughs> and, the game is not a square. It yeah. is a cube. <laughs> you turn the cube around and there's I, I had goosebumps and I feel like anybody who's playing this game and actually takes the time to like sit there for a second and wonder what is going on like feels that so i mean i i, I applaud you that was it was not a small impact whatsoever on me that's awesome thank you so much so i i have a couple questions uh just to kind of circle back on the manual here um i had a question for you but i guess what i want to ask first of all because we're talking about that that amazing ending is like have have most of the players that you've talked to Andrew like gotten the true ending because you know getting all all what is the 54 56 pages of the manual is is no you know small feat you have to be really kind of rocking and rolling and paying attention to the game's clues and stuff like that to to obtain that um so ha like have you found that most of the people kind of put in the effort got got all the different pages of the manual and unlocked that that true ending uh that's a good question. I I don't think I could speak statistically. I guess we could look at, you know, um, Steam achievements, or something, uh, yeah. achievements or, yeah, uh, to figure out what the what the breakdown is. Because most of the time, if someone wants to talk to me, they have either uh, done both endings, or done one ending and then like looked up the the rest of it, or um, uh, you know, watched a, a video or something like that. But Right, so right. most of the time people have gone through and done it, but, but what I've observed is that um, people will, we, 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 there was a bit of a back and forth uh, before launch about how we should direct players gently from ending A to ending B. And right. it ends up being like pretty explicit. In some cases, there are some manual pages that you find that are like, it's this or this, there's another one, please go do the other ending. Uh, and also explicitly saying at the game over screen um seek another path and choosing that language carefully was you know took some consideration because this is a game that very much wants to keep everything close to its chest it wants to let you bumble into the rest of the game you know right uh but that was a point where we thought no it we, we owe it to our players to let them know, just give them the gentlest nudge to let them know that this game has more for them. Right. I, I just did a quick look and it looks like uh, uh, that, that achievement. Thank you for playing, completing the manual is uh, not, not a whole lot of players have gotten it. So, but I agree. Like the game does tell you like very specifically, like, Hey, I encourage you to go find the rest of the manual. Um, but my, my initial question before I got sidetracked here was, um, about the actual manual itself. I, I thought that that 
you know, as, as we've kind of been saying, is such a fantastic piece of this game. And I don't know if you're able to answer this or, or if there's an answer at all, but I was thinking to myself, like, man, I would, like, I would love to have this manual, like, and, and to be able to, like, hold this manual, like, a physical copy. And I kind of got to thinking, like, this this kind of seems like something to me that uh, that a publisher, like, limited-run games or something might put together where, like, they, could, they have a bunch of memorabilia that's packaged with a special edition. Um, so I, I guess my question is twofold. Is... Is there any plans for like any kind of, of merchandise like that? And then maybe uh, is there a plan for like uh, a physical run of, of Tunic down the road? Is that uh, is that in the works? Uh, I, there are no uh, official announcements about anything like that right now. Um, you are not the first person. Um, <laughs> this may may uh, come as a surprise. You're not the first person necessarily to uh, suggest that a, a physical copy of the manual would be cool. Um, so it's definitely something that we're keeping in mind. Right. It's it's interesting because you wouldn't be able to have it as a normal game manual, because it's like, hey, here's a here's a game. Read the manual. Well, you've sort of, uh, you know, obviated yeah. half of the yeah. It's it's so it would be uh, it would be uh, an interesting sort of puzzle to solve there. But you know, there's ways around that. Oh, I I would love to. To have that uh, that manual, even even if I can't read what it says, I think I think that it would be cool. So I've I've got a couple uh, questions for you. When we started this, you you mentioned that you that you had had some you know some help from some other uh, developers, contributors, and, and stuff like that. And you mentioned Lifeform in particular, and I wanted to talk about how that connection kind of came to be because I I feel like the soundtrack for Tunic was really quite exceptional and, and like really in a in a very, it wasn't quite Zelda, but it it wasn't dissimilar either. Where it it felt nostalgic, but it was like kind of its own thing. And there are people that can describe music really well. I'm not one of them, but I I thought that it just I thought that it really kind of nailed the vibe of like what you would want a kind of you know modern Zelda esque game to sound like while while kind of having an identity of its own. So, um, you know, how did you how did you get connected with Lifeformed, and, and were you involved with the process of uh, you know creating that uh, that score for tunic uh yeah so i had been listening to a an album by lifeformed by by terence called immerse which was uh composed for the double fine documentary thing whatever it was called double fine adventure mm -hmm. and <clears throat> it was it, it's a tremendous piece of work. You should go check it out. Um, and it inspired a lot of the thoughts that I was having just before I started work on Tunic, like this, you know, this world with, um, you know, sunshine and adventure and just running around at top speed, trying to trying to find secrets in the world. And, you know, even the the titles of some of the tracks were evocative, you know, like a, a coin under every rock. Uh, and so when I was prototyping the game, I was listening to that music a lot, and I put together a little miniature trailer thing uh, using uh, Terrence's music. And I sent it and I said, uh, hey, here's this little video. And at the end it says, hey, what do you think? Do you, do you wanna work together? Do you wanna make a soundtrack for this game? And he said, yes. And it took a long time for you know me to finish the game uh and for that to all come together but uh it happened and i i feel 
uh, able to gush about the soundtrack in Tunic um, pretty honestly because I had very little uh, hand in it. You know, I provided direction and help with things like uh, implementation, obviously, but uh, you know, oh, this is this is a cave full of frogs, and sometimes they find you, and um, it should feel like this. And here's here's the music that I think of when I think of sneaky music and stuff like that. And, and Terence and Janice and I also worked closely with with Kevin, who's the not just the audio designer for the game, but sort of like the audio director. Um, so he sort of headed up a lot of that communication with with Terence and Janice as well. Um, but the end product is, yeah, it's it's amazing. It um, it's different than Immerse and uh, is its own beautiful thing. And I agree, it, it is, it's interesting. It is both uh, sort of ethereal and broad and relaxing and dreamlike, but also has strong themes and has moments of intensity. And uh, it's just, I, I got like the final album, like Flax, and was was playing them without you know playing the game like i'd heard the music of you know a quadrillion times well right. debugging and playing the game and stuff uh but just being able to sit back and listen to the album masters was like dang this is good this is real good uh so yeah you should uh you should you should go get it podcast I'll, listener i'll tell you what you talk about moments of intensity i've got that uh that boss scavenger theme burned in my brain because yes. i must have fought that that guy like 50 times before yeah, right. i finally beat him yeah that uh, one's that one's real tricky that's one of the the ones that i hear about a lot we balance the difficulty of that quite a bit like down um but one of the goals that i had so the, the qa team is another uh, important contributor to this project uh, because they weren't just the here are the bugs please fix them team this is the the internal um qa team at finji they would also be extremely valuable resources for playtesting and, and refining stuff because they played the game a lot and they had gotten right. good at it. But they also remembered their initial experiences. You know, they weren't involved in the behind the scenes. So the version of the game that they were playing was largely the completed one. So we had a lot of back and forth there and, and they were like, yeah, this is really hard and it needed to be dialed back. But the, it ended up being mostly about like, um, frame timings and hitbox stuff because the suggestion to ever have the scavenger boss uh lay up for just one second was like well that's that's sort of antithetical to this idea of it being this you know uh brutally hard white knuckle thing it was um uh fans of of bloodborne the the music that i was listening to before terence composed that uh terence and janice composed that that uh nail biting track uh, what I was listening to was the track "The Hunter" from the Bloodborne soundtrack, where you fight Father Gascoigne for the first time. I, I, I'm just gonna say I absolutely love knowing now that yeah. that fight was dialed back. <laughs> I was gonna say too, like I, I somehow stumbled on him before I stumbled on the librarian and the, uh, I forget the other boss's name, but he, like he, the, the blue ring was the first one that I got. So he was my first oh, wow. boss. And I was like, cool. Oh my God. I, I was, I was running around actually with, uh, the, the cavities had been like zapping my life down to nothing. Cause I, I didn't have the card with the mask. So I was running around with like one hit left before I died. And I finally got to the save station or the, the statue there and, and had to fight this guy a million times. But 
That was a that was a mighty fine feeling when he finally went down. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. That's so awesome. I I yeah. Kudos. That's that. Uh, that sounds hard. <laughs> it 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 was hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we have the same question, kind of about uh, the illustrator of the um, the manual. It has a very like original NES aesthetic. So we were kind of wondering same the same question. Like, how did that relationships? Uh, come about as well um so we knew that we wanted to do well i, I from the very start very nearly I, I thought this game has to have a manual and one of the things that i really liked about those old manuals was how some of the illustrations were you know sprawling illustrations you know storybook style spreads across the page of you know really awesome things like here's a uh, a painting of Hyrule, or here's this this um, this image of Ganon, who's just a just a shin. You know, he's so big that you can just see part of his leg, right? Like um, the, those illustrations were really cool, and I knew I couldn't I couldn't do the the cool ones, um, but I could do the other sorts of illustrations that I like, which are the uh, rinky dink little uh, you know illustrations in the corner uh, of you know. Uh, wide link if you uh, if you know the one that I'm talking about so um, the the process was I, I knew I could handle some of these doodles but some of the ones that required um, <laughs> a little bit more uh, gravitas we need we needed an illustrator for so uh, we um, reached out to Mako uh, who's an illustrator who I think mostly has their home on Instagram um, and you know i said hey i'm working on this game uh here's some examples of of what it would need and here are some examples from uh manuals that i like um here are some crappy little doodles that i've done so far <laughs> and uh yeah mako was was on board and um very um understanding of the development cycle because it was uh, you know, we, we decided like, oh yeah, we're going to work together. And then it wasn't for, you know, you know, I'd sometimes be like six months, 12 months before I would say, Hey, okay, now we're really ready. Here are some specs for illustration. So, um, I, I'm really glad that we were fortunate to, to, uh, work with Mako and, and it worked out in the end. And one of the cool things is, uh, again, sort of spoilers, there's a, a manual page that you get that has, signatures from the team and i said to the illustrator uh you know go ham basically like do whatever you want this is basically your signature and that's where we got this uh incredibly dope illustration of the fox sort of fan art style uh wrecking shop with some enemies uh, on the inside front cover yeah totally. you know i meant to ask you did is the fox is that his like official name because I've, I've kind of flipped between calling him fox and hero and is it just is it mr fox is that like his official name <laughs> uh it, we i mean even internally we just say the fox or tunic fox okay um so yeah there's no and that was sort of intentional from the very beginning like the the idea that the fox is a is an avatar like or a um like a cipher a representation for you the player in this world you know we wanted people to feel like hey um 
I, I am this character in this space. And, and when I started, I did not have the 3d modeling skills to make a character creator or whatever. Cause if you want to, if, if it's a person, it needs to sort of like look like you. And I, I don't, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to pull that off, but a, an anthropomorphic character seemed like a good solution. And, and Fox was a, a reasonable way to go there. So it, it is meant, yeah, specifically to be sort of empty shell through which you can see yourself. And that's why um, there's no like specified gender for the fox or anything like that. Even um, right. when we're doing localization, there's a lot of languages that have um, gendered nouns. So the way that you conjugate or attach um, uh, uh, different, you know, like linguistic elements to, to uh, different nouns means that you sort of can't get away from gendering certain things certain times. Right. So we had to go out of our way in some languages like um, French, for instance, to um, uh, like in, in French, the, the fox is called uh, the avatar instead okay. of the hero, because if it's a, if it begins with a, a vowel, then you can use an L apostrophe for instead of having a le or a la which would gender the the player character so yeah sort of went sort of uh uh spent special effort on trying to make sure that um it was kept ambiguous for as many people as, as possible right um so i i have another kind of weird question for you here and it's gonna require some setup so um I, in addition to being a big zelda fan I'm also like a really big Metroid fan. That th those are my two loves. And um, a name that really popped out to me in the credits of this game was that of Tom Happ, who is a solo developer, much like you, who's worked on the Axiom Verge series, which kind of is to Metroid what Tunic might be to Zelda. Um, and I really enjoyed the the Axiom Verge games as well. And and I just I was kind of struck by that because I was like, well, here's two solo developers, or, or for the most part, solo developers working on you know these these indie titles and and i guess i was wondering like is there is there kind of like a community of developers like you where you can maybe say like you know share tips tricks anything like that um where i guess like people can uh, kind of share their own experiences and pass along their you know stuff that they found helpful much like we see in the game of tunic uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. You you are sort of having to to share your wisdom in, in that way as well. Uh, yes, absolutely. There's a community. So I um, reached out to a few people early in development, saying, um, "Hello, I'm making a video game. <laughs> oh no, uh, what do I do? How do you?" And I think in particular, when I I contacted Tom, it was, um, "How do you deal with building something large design wise?" and knowing like do you is it a, a top down is it a bottom up thing do you you know sort of follow your nose and build an area as you feel like it should be or do you start at the very top and decide what the ending is and see how that filters down to everything like it's it's not an easy um problem to solve you know wrapping your head around mm -hmm. the, the best way to think about a problem you know like a problem that you understand is almost not really a problem anymore in some ways uh, but if you don't understand the problem, then it's very tricky. Anyway, so I was asking around about that sort of thing and, and um, how it was helpful. Uh, and the other part of your question, is there a community? Um, absolutely, yes. So the, first of all, the caveat is that there's not a, it's not a, it's not a place or a thing. It's not like there's a secret Discord server where all the indie game developers hang out. That's, oh, I don't want man. it to sound I like I was that. hoping you were going to. 
there was or something like a, N- no, a Justice no. League of indie developers or something. That'd be cool. Uh, no, because uh, when you were phrasing the question, I was like, well, it, the, yeah, there is. It's just, you know, you, you, you find something um, that you think is cool. You find someone that you admire and you reach out and, and you talk to them. And what I found is that, um, that people are really friendly and willing to help. Like I mentioned with um, uh, Rebecca and Adam Saltzman, just being willing to help is something that comes up a lot in this industry. Sometimes you'll talk to, um, uh, you know, you, you might say, oh, I'm working on a game. And someone might say, oh, have you have you patented it? Are you taking it to a trade show and making people sign NDAs before they can look at it and right. stuff like that? And it's it's uh, a, a sort of an awakening when you realize like, oh, this is this is how a lot of the world operates, where it's, you know, trade secrets and um, no, you can't see what I'm working on because that's absolutely not what it's like in the game development scene, or at least my exposure to it in the, on the indie side of things. It's uh, people love to share what they're working on and they love to talk to other people who are creating things and look at interesting problems together and come up with interesting solutions. And yeah, chances are if there's someone out there that you think, wow, I really admire their work and I and I want to know how they did this one particular thing, they're, they're probably willing to help out and, and answer your questions. Right. So... Um, that, that just that just brought a smile to my face, just seeing Tom Hap's name in there, just because I've watched his documentary and he just seems like such a great guy. And it just, uh, yeah, it was just it kind of brought a smile to my to my face, just seeing these these two you know games that I really love that are kind of inspired by two of my favorite series. So uh, that's really cool to hear. Um, so I've got a question for you, but I, you know, I realize we've been talking for for almost 50 minutes now. And I haven't asked you even what your favorite Zelda game is. And this is going to kind of feed into my next question. Um, but if, if I were to put you on the spot, Andrew, what would you Zelda say? Zelda 2. Oh, no. Really? Okay, Allison, are, is your head still on over there? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, I, Zelda 2 has a very special place in my heart. Um, I, I've got the manual for it, maybe, in arm's reach? I don't know where it is. Might, might, I might have put it away, actually. Um, uh because it is like very weird and unusual and hard and the combat is very technical and um i've never beaten it properly myself um it, because my cartridge keeps messing up and losing all my data i, uh, I just want you to know how much i love you for saying zelda 2 <laughs> that's so really great. wow okay oh yeah um, I, i'm serious <laughs> uh so yeah i i mean it's a hard question to answer i mean you you folks run a a Zelda podcast, a Zelda website. So you, you know that it's tricky. Um, I think the one that um, represents me being infatuated with video games and just, uh, you know, soaking in every moment was probably uh, Ocarina. But um, the fascination with the unknown is probably Zelda one. Um, mm-hmm. And I would have said that I had no faith in the series until Breath of the Wild came out, which I think is the one that has like blew my mind the most do you know what i mean right um, reinvigorated i feel like is a good word for it yeah totally um so uh good job whoever made that decision um because yeah it uh that's a it's a really special thing like the well, um it, de- it definitely that, did had sorry go on i was gonna say i'm glad that you had uh yeah that you said breath of the wild because i was gonna ask you um and this this eventually will tie into a question if you're looking forward to breath of the wild too um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, 
I'm a little bit, I don't want to say worried because that's a strange thing to say about a video game that isn't out, but um, Breath of the Wild was such a, 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 a cool thing to wander around and look off into the distance and think, what's that? Oh, that's a dragon. What's this? You know, like all the, all these. I I just hope that that sort of uh, never ending cascade of oh, what's that? What does this mean? Um, happens again. Like I would love to see the um, the Majora's Mask uh, mm-hmm. version of that. I think that would be very neat. Um, right. But yeah, I don't know. But actually, you know what? Majora's Mask. I didn't mention Majora's Mask is 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 cool. Um, maybe that should be up there. Zelda there. Yeah. <laughs> kind of tough asking someone to pick their favorite Zelda game. It's kind of like, who's your favorite kid, right? Like, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough answer. Um, but I'm going to tie this all together because I remember seeing Tunic revealed at E3 2017. And uh, Al, I believe that you and I were, were covering E3 2017. And, and obviously when we saw Tunic, um, it, it caught our eye and, and the eye of, uh, I want to say, like almost all the Zelda Dungeon staff, because we were like, this, this looks like a great Zelda-like game. And um, of course, you know, we, we wouldn't see it come out until um, earlier this year, which, uh, you know, obviously is pretty understandable since it's mostly a one-person show. But I, I wanted to ask you kind of, because we've seen the same thing with Breath of the Wild 2, and, and as you might imagine, that's kind of been like a, a hot topic among the Zelda community and how long is too long to to show a game and then wait for it to come out? And I, I guess I'm just asking you really as a, kind of a developer and also just as a as a fan, like what if in a perfect world, like what would your ideal like here's the game, it's the it's the world reveal, and how long would it be until that game was was available to purchase? I guess what's what's your perfect like reveal to release window? Oh, uh hmm, interesting. Uh Okay. From a developer standpoint, um, like me, me personally, the, the reason that the, the length of time was so long in, in Tunic's case was that um, for a long time, I, I didn't really have a, a solid plan. It was sort of uh, like, oh, wow, you know, this outlet wants to show the game. Well, we got we to gotta do something. You know, Xbox wants to put it on the, the E3 um uh, stage show wow well okay yeah absolutely and at no point that was a, a very cool thing about working with you know people like finji and and with microsoft in general um they at no point did anyone say you know TikTok, gotta finish this game before q3 or anything like that right like right. everybody awesome. knew what it was and knew that it was going to take a while and you know eventually it it was done um so for Tunic, the reason that it was announced so soon is that, you know, it was two weeks after starting development that I started posting something on on Vine saying, hey, I'm making this thing. And every step of the way, I had no idea what I was getting into. So um, that's that's why it was the case there. Uh, and this, yeah, it's a tricky question because in in a world without capitalism, zero seconds, right? The game is done and you can play it and you go in knowing absolutely nothing and the uh, requirements of you know building hype and uh you know marketing and all that sort of stuff getting you know review stuff in if if we if we didn't need to do that if if imagine a world where we didn't need to do any of those things and you could just be said uh you know like hey the video game is here um 
you can play it. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Then again, I do like being excited about things. Mm-hmm. You know, a uh, what what better closed door is there than the Zelda game you haven't played yet? Uh, so yeah, I I'm gonna I'm gonna bail on this question. I don't have a meaningful answer. I'm just uh, sort of waffling on it. I, um, I was hoping that you might, because I don't know if we do either. Because we, you know, as you might imagine, like we're we're frothing at the mouth for this Breath of the Wild two sequel, but uh, it's uh, you know it, it's been a little bit of time. So I I'm, I was really interested to hear the answer from the other like the developer side as well. So um, yeah. yeah, I guess we'll we'll keep waiting for it. Um, all right, so Tunic came out earlier this year. The reception has been unbelievable. You look at Metacritic, this game has uh, rave reviews, 9 out of 10, uh, 10 out of 10s. Uh, and in fact, and, and again, we're not we're not tooting your horn here, Andrew. We're not blowing smoke, but we Al and I reviewed uh, the game proper a couple weeks ago on the Champions Cast. And um, we call, I think the quote was, this is one of the best like Zelda-like titles that I've ever played. Wow. So holy smokes. And, and and yeah, and I mean like um you know, of course we there there were some things that we that we nitpicked, but I mean when you look at the overall scope and overall package, like this is just a, a an incredible an incredible achievement, I guess is the right words. So like I guess like what is what does seeing this reception mean to you after spending like 7 years working on this game you mentioned that you quit your job to to pursue this passion project like what is the what is the reception uh just mean to you as a as a developer and and just as a guy that's invested so much uh you know blood sweat and tears into this project it it's it's very weird i i don't know how to communicate it but it's it's a it's a surreal experience because I was, I was at times, uh, uh, I, I could convince myself that things were going to be okay, that like, hey, maybe this game is all right. But a lot of the time, I was 100% convinced that it was uh, an embarrassing tire fire. <laughs> um, oh, man. And that was in part because the game wasn't done, and in part because I'm like very uh, you know, obviously everybody's critical of their own work. Um, and so it, it, all of that got sort of shoved to the back burner when we were trying to get the game done. You know, I didn't really have time to have anxiety about whether or not it was balanced correctly. You know, I had done my best, but I couldn't think about that now. We've got, you know, bugs to fix and, and patches mm-hmm. to put out before, you know, you know, it's ready to go. And I had my my partner next to me when we were like pressing the buttons, you know, setting it live. Right. And that coincided with the uh, press embargo as well. And uh, yeah, my, my partner's job job was to basically buffer me against all of this the 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 stuff. Like you know, she would be able to read the. Uh, the reviews and maybe tell me like oh they you know they, they really like this part or um uh you know and and maybe not tell me if you know things were really bad you know help me out sort of be a something of an emotional firewall right um and so the moment i pushed the button she was able to read reviews as well because that was the the embargo being up 
and yeah, I, f I forget which one she said out loud, but it was just like something, something 98. And, um, I just like, I, like, I, I remember choking for a second and just the I just, my entire brain rebooted, uh, and couldn't believe it. Anyway, this is a, this is a very dramatic emotional story for, yay, I'm extremely happy, <laughs> uh, about it. Uh, but it was a little bit hard to believe at the moment. And I'm still sort of getting used to the idea that people like it that much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely something that I, I think you should definitely be, be proud of, I, I guess. So, so we're not developers or anything like that, but, uh, like, w did you ever have that moment where, where you're just like, where you were like, all right, this isn't a dumpster fire anymore. Like it's, it's coming together and, and I'm making something special or, or, or did you allow yourself to kind of feel that way before the game released? When I was working on game jam games, I had this model in my head of if you work on a game long enough, you get into this real funk. There's this, you know, horrible swampy bit right in the middle where everything seems like it's garbage. Uh, but then, then it all comes together and everything's great. And that's the fun bit. Um, and I remember working on this game saying, well, I'm in the soupy, awful swamp part. When's the good <laughs> bit happen? You know, according to my schedule, it's supposed to be about, you know, halfway through. It's supposed to really start coming together. And then it's really fun for the second half. And it turns out that just doesn't work, at least not for me. It's because a larger project is made up of so many small things that all need to work together, um, like design-wise and, and technically and, and all of that. Um, there isn't really that one singular moment. It's a, but it's a series of smaller moments. Uh, and th that did happen. I mean, I, like I said, it was, there was a lot of self doubt along the way layered on top of all of that but along the way there were a number of moments where to me it felt like oh hey it's a real video game now a lot of those were actually related to uh audio work you know like having someone be able to come in and breathe life into the animations that i've been working on right. uh that, that, those were some cool moments and also being able to you know play the game front to back for the first time it's actually something that isn't a singular moment as well because it's you know there's being able to get to the end boss that is just a text on the screen that says end boss and that all the way to being able to actually see credits and have it be a, a, a complete experience. Um, but yeah, it, along the way, there were definitely moments of, dang, we're working on a neat thing, aren't we? Oh, that's awesome. Um, all right. So I guess, you know, after, after seven years, I, I think you're probably taking a, a, a well-earned break, a well-earned rest. But, uh, you know, I guess, I guess we'll ask you this as, as we get you out of here. Um, what, what's in your future? Um, and, and is it possible that we see this little fox again uh, somewhere down the road? <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Uh, tunic 2. Tunic. Um, <laughs> oh, that's that's gold there right there. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it just writes itself. Uh, <laughs> folks. Um, yeah, good question. You know, it's a, it's a game about discovery, and so I don't, I'm not sure if a sequel would work, but I do love making games about secrets, so maybe I'll work on something like that in the future. But for now, I'm probably going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, start working through that backlog. Yeah, what's game number one that uh, that you're going to first? Uh, well, um, fortunately enough, there's a little thing called Elden Ring that I've been working my way through, uh, which has been a, a special experience. 
um, timing just, for that? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, hey, you just finished making your video game. Here, have infinite video game. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, which is interesting. I found out last night that I had, uh, I, I sort of also did sort of what you did when playing through doing, you know, things out of order. Uh, and I discovered that an area that I'd been to before was meant to be like this grand reveal. Here's the second half anyway. I, oh. uh, but uh, yeah, after that, yeah, maybe I'll do some, uh, do some Hollow Knight, get some Ori in there. Um, yeah. See how it goes. All those sound like winter. You know, you mentioned Bloodborne earlier. Um, and so Al and I reviewed Tunic a couple weeks ago with, uh, with one of Zelda dungeons managing editor is a guy named rod and he's like huge into the souls games and and i've had bloodborne sitting on my game shelf for like the last four years and I, but i haven't got to it yet and every time i say that rod's like what are you doing you gotta get you gotta play it you gotta play it so maybe maybe i will uh join you either with elden ring or or bloodborne because i i feel like uh, i might have an opening in my backlog here pretty soon too yeah so, yeah get some get some bloodborne action in there that sounds awesome I've heard it's such a good game, and uh, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's it's literally. I'm looking at it right now, and I just uh, I just haven't had the time to do it. So there you go. Um, well, Andrew, we really appreciate you you taking the time and uh, and chatting with us and and just kind of illuminating us into you know some of the behind the scenes details of how Tuna came together and and your personal insight and uh, you know really just congratulations on on the launch and and the success uh, of Tunic. I, I think that it really is you know, kind of, kind of take in the, the video game world by storm. I was seeing it everywhere. And, and again, kind of like I said, at the, at the beginning, like I, I felt, uh, you know, cheesy as it sounds, I felt like really proud to see a, a Canadian developer kind of making waves. So um, thank you for, for joining us and, and congrats, man. Thank you so much um, from, from one Canadian to another. Thank you. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so if you want to tell, uh, people where they can check you out if you if you want to plug any social media project anything like that uh, the, the floor is yours uh yeah so uh tunicgame.com is probably where you want to head if this sounds like it's your jam uh, we've got a mailing list there that you uh can sign up for if you want to be kept up to date with stuff there's also uh Finjico on twitter is uh is a good follow if you like um pictures of dogs and information about upcoming video games <laughs> just stop with the pictures of dogs right there that's all you need um by the way i've seen some really cool artwork from tunic on uh, on your twitter account and and the uh the tunic game account as well really really cool stuff kind of pouring in yeah it's uh it's a very um it's heartwarming to see to yeah. see fan art for sure um all right well that is uh that is gonna do it for us thank you again to andrew and uh for taking the time with us today uh we're gonna get out of here but we will be back next week talking all things zelda and in fact we are going to be doing can't believe i'm saying this a triforce heroes ask us anything so my least favorite zelda game <laughs> you can ask us whatever you want and i will be obligated to answer it so uh, make sure that you do that. We'll have a tweet go out and you can ask us over on Discord. Uh, make sure that you check us out over on Twitter at Spateri316 at Allison Aletha and check out the Champions Cast wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again to Andrew. Um, if you are on the fence about Tunic, you got to check it out. I know we told you a couple weeks ago, but man, this is this is the game that's going to hold you over till Breath of the Wild 2, I guarantee it. <laughs> so check it out. Until awesome. next week, everyone. Take care. Thank Bye. you both. All right, gang. Awesome.